You know, life is a lot like the Iditarod race. It is long and beautiful and grueling. And very, very few people finish well. They, they, might, they might be wonderful, healthy, brilliant, and bold during the early or their middle years, but not many people finish the race like the Apostle Paul who would say at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Instead, most people finish life like one of my old mentors. Selfishly losing sight of the real meaning of success, divorcing the wife of his youth, estranging his family, embarrassing his Savior, willfully alone out in the cold. Sadly, such poor finishes are the norm. Listen, even among God's people, even Asa, our hero that we discussed last time, Asa, that wonderful king of Judah who breaks the cycles of sin that he inherited, who destroyed the idols in Judah, even Asa appears not to finish well. What leads Asa to his poor finish? Why does he trip up and embarrass himself and God at the end of his life? The main problem seems to be that Asa develops a warped view of success. No, he doesn't become an idolater or sin sexually or any other flamboyant fall, but he finishes poorly nonetheless just because the guy couldn't get a handle on what successful reality looks like. Let me show you. Open your Bible to 2 Chronicles chapter 16, 2 Chronicles chapter 16, and while you're turning, let me tell you this. This passage reveals the two main problems with Asa's definition of success, and I copied both these in your notes. Uh, you got a bulletin when you came in. Open it up, and inside there, you'll see notes printed. On the left side, you'll see Asa, number one, seeks material victory foremost, and number two, Asa seeks only human help in his pain. Asa seeks material victory foremost, and he seeks only human help in his pain. Let's read about it, starting in uh, chapter 16, verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter. In the 36th year of Asa, Israel's king Baasha went to war against Judah. Asa is the king of Judah, the southern Jewish kingdom. Uh, Baasha is king of the north of Israel. Baasha uh, built Ramah in order to deny access to anyone going or coming to Judah's king Asa. So Asa brought out the silver and gold from the treasuries of the Lord's temple and the royal palace and sent it to Aram's king, Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad is a title. Uh, it's kind of like Pharaoh. It's a title of the kings of Syria. Uh, Aram and Syria, basically the same country. All right. uh, who lived in Damascus saying, there's a treaty between me and you. Between my father and your father, look, I've sent you silver and gold. Go, break your treaty with Israel's king Baasha, so he will withdraw from me. Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies to the cities of Israel. They attacked Ejon, Dan, Abel-Maim, and all the storage cities of Naphtali. <clears throat> when Baasha heard about it, he quit building Ramah and stopped his work. Then King Asa brought all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and the timbers Baasha had built with. Then he built Geba and Mitzpah with them. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to King Asa of Judah and said to him, Because you depended on the king of Aram and have not depended on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. Were not the Cushites and Libyans a vast army with many chariots and horsemen? When you depended on Yahweh, he handed them over to you. For the eyes of Yahweh roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those whose hearts are completely his. You have been foolish in this matter. Therefore, you will have wars from now on. Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison because of his anger over this. And Asa mistreated some of the people at that time. Note that the events of Asa's reign from beginning to end are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. That's the book we call Second Kings in our Bible. In the 39th year of his reign... Asa developed a disease in his feet. 
And his disease became increasingly severe. Yet even in his disease, he didn't seek the Lord, but only the physicians. Asa died in the 41st year of his reign and rested with his fathers. He was buried in his own tomb that he'd made for himself in the city of David. They laid him out in a coffin that was full of spices and various mixtures of prepared ornaments. Then they made a great fire in his honor. Now the first verse of 17. His son Jehoshaphat became king in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. Look what's occurring here. Asa... Asa's mistaken understanding of success leads him, a godly person, it leads him not to finish well. Do you see how his values flip? They, they flip from what they were earlier in his remarkable reign. Before, he sought spiritual victory foremost, knowing that is what matters most. But before, Asa sought God first, even when there was a million-man army terrorizing his country. But then, after years of blessing, Asa shifts. He grabs for material victory first, and he gets angry with any opposition to that. He leaves God out of his, out of his pain accessing only human assistance. Aren't you glad that we're not like that? Asa falls into the common misunderstanding of success, and it warps his priorities. And that warped attitude, in case you don't know this, that permeates our contemporary Christian community as well. This chapter, please listen, this chapter is our future if you and I don't learn from it. Now, I know you resent that remark. You're, you're already bristling as you sit there listening to me say that. And in fact, I know of no other sermon in this series that is going to offend so many people. And I am not trying to be offensive. But we need to notice the reason we're offended by this text is that we have the same warped views of success that Asa developed. And if we don't change, we are going to end up just as spiritually diseased. With that in mind, I would ask you to pray with me. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for myself that I will not finish the race poorly, that with all the blessing you have given, that I will enjoy you and, and fight the fight well to the very end. I pray the same for my brothers and sisters. Lord, I am very concerned for us because, quite frankly, we didn't start as well as Asa. We haven't been as healthy as he was in the beginning and middle, so I'm really concerned about our ending. And I beg you, that whatever age any Christian is who is studying with me right now, that you will develop, you will take this text and you will imprint it in our hearts so that we finish well. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, the first part of the text shows us how Asa changes and how he seeks material victory foremost. The threat is in verse 1. Uh, Baasha, the king of the idolatrous northern uh, Jewish kingdom, he fortifies this city, Ramah. It's right along the frontier between Israel and Judah. Baasha wants to hem in the people who are running uh, to the godly situation down in Judah. So he fortifies Ramah to keep his people in. It's not that he's trying to keep anybody else out. He's trying to keep his people in. He's bothered by the situation perfectly described for us back in 2 Chronicles 15, verse 9. People from Israel in the north had defected to the godly king of Judah in the south, in great numbers when they saw that Yahweh, his God, was with him. So in response to that defection, Basa builds the earliest known example of the Berlin Wall. That's what this is. It's the Berlin Wall. I remember, I remember vividly sitting in West Germany in 1986 on the 25th anniversary of the wall. I was sitting with all of my German staff at the camp that I was doing program for, and we were listening on a radio to Eric Honecker, the dictator of East Germany, as he was giving a Hitler-esque kind of speech, praising this wonderful wall 
Because, he said, it keeps us, it saves us from all the horrors of the West. What a nonsense. What a lie. We knew it was a lie listening to it. The people in the East knew it was a lie. I would imagine Baasha gives speeches just like that. But just because these kinds of walls are lies and because they're wicked doesn't mean they don't have impact. They do. The result in, in your text in 2 Chronicles was an economic downturn and political pressure on the southern kingdom of Judah. J just look at the map. You'll, you'll see um, on, on this map, most of, the, most of the good farmland is in the north. See how it's green up there in, in Galilee and in Israel? Judah only has one really great industry, and that's tourism. All right? Cutting off the worshipers who are coming as tourists to the temple in Jerusalem has an immediate, serious, negative economic effect on Asa's kingdom of Judah. Uh, just imagine that all the sales tax receipts here in North Texas get cut by three quarters, okay? Just imagine that on the impact on all of your cities. That, that's how seriously this can impact Judah. The text next details for us the tactic that Asa uses in response to this threat. Asa crafts a Syrian alliance in verses 2 through 4. He gets together with the leader of Aram slash Syria, and he says, here's the deal. You attacked Baasha in the north of his country up in Galilee. That will draw him off from this blockade that's killing me. Oh, and to sweeten the deal, here's some treasure. We don't have much money because of this hard economy, but here's some of my royal treasure. And, did you notice this? This payoff includes a bunch of treasure that was specifically dedicated to the Lord in his temple. I trust you realize that is a biblical no-no. He does not have the authority to give that away, but he includes it in his treasure. But even though it's wrong, the strategy works. Verses 5 and 6 show Asa's plan working. This appears to be successful. Baasha is forced to stop just as the Berlin Wall was torn down. This is a piece of that horrible wall. I went to the east and got this piece of the wall. And by the way, when I, I had to work to get this piece of the Berlin Wall because all the Germans, being Germans, were not destroying everything. They were codifying it and keeping it and storing the pieces because being Germans, they thought they might use it later. You know, it could be useful later. That's exactly Baasha. Like a good German, Asa gets all of Baasha's supplies and he uses them to build his own blockade. You see, what he, he tries to hem in the bad old king of the north. We see remarkable similarity in the modern state of Israel. What has been the main impact of the Palestinian terrorism in Israel over the past several years? Tourism, which is one of modern Israel's top industries, has been crippled, and it hurts. So what do the modern Israelis do instead? What are they doing right now? They're building their own wall. They established their own blockade. They have hemmed Hamas into a small space from which they cannot escape. One of the main cities where Hamas is blockaded today is called Ramallah, or as the Western press says it, Ramallah. Uh, it takes its name from an ancient city that was on that same site. Anybody want to guess what the name of the ancient city was? Ramah, the exact one in your text. The more things change, the more they stay the same. The counterstrike of modern Israel at Ramallah is a page straight from King Asa's book. Now, at this point, Asa is being interviewed on talk shows. He's got a new book out, uh, Success Through Syria, and it's selling millions of copies. He's got it made. The guy's walking around singing, something tells me I'm into something good. He's, he's just loving life. And it's not that he's doing bad things, folks. It's good to stop that northern aggression. It's good to tear down that Berlin Wall. It's good to fortify at almost no expense to himself. He's doing good things. He's just not doing right. 
And that's where God loves Asa enough to give him a lesson. On the right side of our notes, we call it the tutorial. <clears throat> the tutorial. Verse 7, we see the problem. Where's Asa's reliance? Upon what or upon whom is he relying, everybody? Yeah, Syria, Ben Hadad of Syria. It isn't that what Asa did was so bad, it's that he wasn't acting out of a trust in God. Success to Asa is no longer trusting the Lord. Success is now winning. Asa decided a material victory was his foremost need. I trust you realize this is still a very strong lure today. For example, at the dawn of the 21st century, millions of people devoured a book called Your Best Life Now, written by a health and wealth preacher who shall remain nameless. By the way, <laughs> do, you ever, do you ever think about this? How could it be your best life now unless you plan on missing heaven? It, Anyway, a horrible title. Anyway, um, another pastor, Greg Gilbert, wrote this review of that book. <clears throat> he said, the really frightening thing is that 5 million people have bought your best life now, and a good portion of those probably walked away thinking they've read the Christian gospel. They think they understand the message of the Bible, and it is me, my success, my self-esteem, my house, my car, my promotion. Now, listen carefully. There actually are some good statements in that goofy Your Life book, but most of it is about self-reliance. It's, it's paganism. It's paganism where you do the certain things that force the deity to do what you want. Asa could have used Ben-Hadad. He could have, just as you and I can utilize some of the development practices that are espoused by the prosperity nuts. But the key is our reliance. Upon whom are you relying? Are you relying on self, some other earthly power, or God? Gilbert finishes with something Asa and the prosperity preachers and all of us need to hear. It was Benjamin Franklin, not Jesus, who said, God helps those who help themselves. That is this book's message, too, only it's more like God helps those who think well of themselves, close quote. Stop thinking so inordinately highly of yourself or of any human. Instead, think appropriately highly of God and rely on Him, all God's people said. Now, look at the rest of verse 7. Verse 7, go back to verse 7. At that time, Hanani, Hanani, the seer, came to King Asa of Judah and said to him, Because you depended on the king of Aram and have not depended on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. <gasps> Here's a revelation. Asa would have had both. If he'd only relied on the Lord God, Asa not only would have stopped Baasha, he would have conquered the king of Syria as well. Syria is going to be a real problem later in biblical history. It could have all been stopped. The revelation is that Asa could have had both. How about you? How, how about me? What extra double blessings from God are we missing? Because we're doing good things, but we're doing them from a material focus only. Now look again at verse 8. Here's some remembrance. Just a few years before, God delivered Asa from a, a Bedouin slash North African army of a million soldiers, a thousand thousands. We looked at this passage last time. God now wants us, and he wants Asa to remember this. If God took care of the one million, couldn't he handle one little walled city on the main road from the north? Yes or no? Could God handle that? Yes or no? Of course the answer is yes. But aren't you like Asa in this regard? Don't, don't you have a broken rememberer sometimes? Maybe you're like me. I, I do. I, this is me. God has saved my very soul. He has brought me through many, many painful struggles, and yet it'll just be some little thing that will utterly shake my balance in the Lord. I, here's how it works for me. When things are horrible, it's actually easier for me. 
When a giant is in my face, I automatically fall on my knees and trust God. I'm not saying I enjoy million-man battles. They're very scary. But when it's a million-man battle and there's nothing I can do, I automatically reflexively turn to Yahweh and seek His help. But when it's something little, when it's just a splinter, then I think I can handle it. In fact, we often do handle it, and we call that success. And so does everybody else around us except, except God. God who made us and loves us and reminds us that real success is only found in Him. Verse 9 explains God's reward. It seems Asa forgot that God goes about looking to reward people, looking to bless people. This is so easy to have happen in your life. Um, men, let, let me just talk to the dudes for a minute. Okay, men, if you're, if you're in your 20s or older, you'll know what I'm talking about. If not, you will experience this, guys, Okay. There's something that happens when you're in your late teens and early 20s, conversation, bunch of guys sitting around having a really great conversation, usually late at night, and eventually, always, inevitably, the conversation turns to this topic. Why do girls, why do all the pretty girls fall for jerks? Why? Why don't they ever like us nice guys, right? That's the conversation. And eventually, somebody says what you're thinking, but you didn't say, which is, that's it. I'm fed up with this. I'm going to start being evil. I'm going to be a thug just so I can get some dates, right? What are the problems with that thinking? There are problems with it. Whether it was the dates conversation in college or your sales meeting at your company last week, what are the two problems with that thinking? Number one, we have defined what we want, lots of what we want, whether it's dates or sales or, or lack of conflict or et cetera, et cetera. Whatever we want, we have defined as success. We define victory in primarily materialistic terms. Secondly, we have lost sight of God's blessings and the rewards that he goes about seeking to reward those who trust him. We've done what Asa did, and it makes us finish poorly. Finally, verse 10 displays Asa's reaction, which is rage. Uh, by the way, this is not unexpected. H having, having a, think it through. Having established success as found only in victory, Asa cannot brook any disagreement because disagreement causes pain, right? And, and that means no more success. As we're going to see further in a moment, Asa has bought into the lie that pain means de facto that you are unsuccessful. You've had bosses like this, right? You've had coaches or professors who could not stand any disagreement at all. There are lots of situations in life where otherwise nice people operate according to this idea. Uh, in these parts, we see it often uh, when you're at the grocery store and a child embarrasses uh, his or her parent, right? The parent reacts and rages. Why? Because that child has made the parent feel unsuccessful. How dare you embarrass me in public? You've made me look unsuccessful. And that is what matters in our thinking. Same thing continues through Asa's last years, but it has kind of an expanded view. We learn in Good King Asa's last years that he seeks only human help with his pain. His terrible finish is found in verse 11 through chapter 17, verse 1. Now, we're only going to grab two verses from here. Read, read verse 12. Note that the events of Asa's reign from beginning to end are written in the book of kings of Judah and Israel. Chapter, verse 12. In his 39th year of his reign, Asa developed a disease in his feet. And his disease became increasingly severe. Yet even in his disease, he didn't seek the Lord, but only the physicians. Quick reminder is in order. Is there anything wrong with seeking medical care? Yes or no? Most certainly not. In fact, in the Bible, James says, having applied the oil, that was the medicine of the day, having applied the oil, then get the elders to pray, it says. Meds come first, even before elder intervention. But do you think that James means for the physicians to be sought in lieu of the Lord? 
Well, no, it's a both and. Look, James 5 even says that the medicine is to be applied in Jesus' name. Asa's mistake is that he leaves God out of the equation. It's not that he seeks physicians, it's that he leaves God out. Why? I think probably because he could not afford to appear unhealthy. Because that's not, he had to be fine. He had to be fine so he could appear sick. I'm fine, everything's fine, I'm just fine. Of course, this nonsense occurs in modern theology as well. You walk into some churches and tell them that you're sick, and they will say, you just need to pray, and you will be completely and immediately healed. I had a pastor tell me one time that if Asa, we were talking about Asa, he said, if Asa had only sought God, he would have been instantly made well. And I said, what? I said, look at the text. God might have made Asa well. The Bible clearly shows Asa should have sought the Lord. But I told my friend he had fallen into the exact same trap as Asa. Exact same trap. Do you see it? Look, for Asa, the, the success was, was in the doctors. Seeking the doctors was a means to an end. That pastor had begun to define success as healthy feet, just as Asa did. For the pastor, seeking God became a means to the same end. But the Bible says that seeking God is the end. That's what matters. Our second verse is 17.1. His son Jehoshaphat became king in his place, strengthened himself against Israel. Now, our notes read supported slash supplanted regarding his throne. Uh, here's the deal. Uh, we know from other texts that Asa's son Jehoshaphat took over during a three-year co-regency. Asa was either, either supplanted or supported by his son. It is very hard to tell whether dad was a willing or unwilling participant in this regency. Asa was still wildly popular with the people. He's still a good guy, still true to the Mosaic law, no adultery, no idolatry, but sadly he has lost true success. He lost it before the Lord and now he's lost it physically in his kingdom. By contrast... What would it look like in Asa's life or mine? What would it look like if a person found reliance upon God as true success? I can tell you this, it looks beautiful. Look in your notes. I've got a list there for you that is loosely based on the thoughts of these two people, Kent and Barbara Hughes, who wrote a wonderful book, great book, on, on how to be free from false success syndromes. Hughes' first point is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 and 2. Let's read it together. 1 Corinthians 4, you take the underlying text, 1 and 2. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. Okay, we're just going to say here, you're servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries. Do you realize if you're a Christian, you are a steward of the mysteries of God? This is awesome stuff. That recitation, that was like you're trying out for the role of Droopy in a reprise of Looney Tunes. That was awful. This is incredible stuff. That was utterly unacceptable. Let's do this again, shall we? Okay. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. Amen. As stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Amen. Faithfulness is success. I want you to listen very carefully. This is incredibly different than, than what you have probably been raised with, especially if you grew up in America. Faithfulness is success. When I was 12, I got a job shoveling sand at a concrete contractor. My boss dropped me off at a stenwalled home, and he told me to shovel all these piles of sand that were in this large foundation for this house and get them leveled out so they could pour concrete on it later. Uh, he said, I don't want you to take any breaks except to go to the bathroom and drink water. I said, yes, sir. 
and I went to work. Now, I was a scrawny little guy. I could lift only very painfully tiny shovelfuls of sand at a time. And I was very dismayed when my boss returned at noon and I had only moved two of the ten piles of sand. That's all I'd been able to get knocked out. He looked at the piles of sand and he said, come over here and sit with me on the stem wall. And I did, and I went and sat down and I put my hands down and said, ow! And he said, let me see your hands. And he looked at them, they were already covered with blisters. Now I think at this point he's going to fire me, right? This is it. I mean, I, I only moved two piles of sand, that's all I could do. And he looked at me and he said something I will never, ever forget. He said, son, you did a good job. He said, faithfulness is what matters. He said, the strength and the speed will come later. If you want to learn how to work, boy, you just keep at it. Faithfulness is what matters. Grit is what matters. You keep at it. Oh, and by the way, he said, buy some gloves before work tomorrow. <laughs> that brings up one of the key thoughts for those of us who are Christians. Let's think about our spiritual lives for a moment. We often feel like defeated preteens in our spiritual walk, don't we? I do. Maybe you do too. We're unsure what faithfulness is because the world keeps constantly and conveniently redefining it, and we lose sight of Scripture. We reduce seeking the Lord to certain physical activities only, or, or, we, or we absurdly assume that only people in occupational ministry really know how to rely upon God. The bottom line is, many, many Christians I know have this nagging fear of failure that dogs our thoughts. Is that true of you? Are you working super hard on your sanctification, but all the while you're fearing that you're not really succeeding? Stop it! Come sit down here with me on the stem wall and absorb Paul's lesson in 1 Corinthians, the lesson that was taught by my old boss. Just keep being faithful. That is what matters, son. Yes, of course, there are certain things that are important to do. We, we do need to keep accountable in our development. That's why you buy gloves if you shovel sand. That's why you practice the spiritual disciplines if you're a Christian. But it all starts here, knowing that faithfulness is success. Now, consider 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Here the apostle tells us to request and rejoice as our primary efforts. Beautiful little chiasm here with a concluding statement at the end. Look how it flows. You've got rejoice always and give thanks in everything. Those are obviously parallel. Those are the inclusios that hold in the cream filling. And the cream filling is to pray. Now this is not rejoicing. This is asking. That's what, that's what prosuchomai means. It means to ask, to present a request. God wants us to find joy in everything, even when we, when we are understandably unhappy, wounded, or worried. He wants us to rejoice. But, but, he knows that until Jesus makes everything new, we're going to be continually beset, right? That's why we ask God for what we need all the time. We don't ever feel bad about asking. We ask continually, without ceasing. We are always rejoicing and asking. This is God's will for us in Jesus. Look, look how it breaks down. You've got two big ideas here. Rejoice and give thanks. That's the first idea. Gratitude should be my life. And the middle idea is I should also be asking all the time. Why? Because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. To be rejoicing and requesting. Now, I know... I know what you're thinking. In that, uh, in that Elmo voice you like to use, you're saying, If God knows us and loves us fully, why do we need to pray? Thank you so much for asking. Um, I had a child at camp tell me that was the voice for this week. Um, it's a great question. Thank you. Scottish writer George MacDonald answered the question 150 years ago. I don't think anyone's ever said it better. He said this, What if he knows prayer to be the thing we need first and foremost? 
What if the main object of God's idea of prayer be the supplying of our great and endless need, the need of himself? What, what if the, God, the good of all our smaller and lower needs lies in this, that they help drive us to God? Communion with God is the one need of the soul beyond all other needs, and prayer is the beginning of that communion. Close quote. It's not that other efforts are wrong. They just aren't primary. Too often, I work before I worship. I, I, I use my hands before I fold them. I, I walk before I kneel. Pray. Pray through both rejoicing and asking, and I'll make you a promise. You will find, you will find that you are moving toward true success. Pray. How can I avoid Asa's poor finish? How can we be like Paul and find success in relying upon God all the way to the end? Jesus gives this principle, lead as servants, not as rulers. Matthew chapter 20. James and John come to Jesus hiding behind their mommy. And, uh, and they ask Jesus for the greatest positions of power in his kingdom. This is Jesus' response. Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your what, everybody? Servant. Servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your what? Slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus is not an anarchist, anything but. He, he will one day reign on earth as the absolute monarch. Jesus is not anti-authority. He's just teaching that his followers gain authority through service, just as he did. Speaking of service... My grandfather was a rabid fan of this man, the poet Robert W. Service. He's not read much anymore. Anybody here ever read any service? You know any Robert W. Service? Okay, a little bit, just a few. Um, Papa, when I was very little, he made me memorize huge chunks of service poems, uh, which I remember to this day my all-time favorite was The Cremation of Sam McGee. Sam McGee was from Tennessee where the cotton blooms and blows and why he left his house in the south to go to the north, God only knows. It, wonderful stuff. Anyway, one of the poems that he made me memorize uh, is taken straight from Matthew 20, the passage we just, we just read. Robert W. Service uh, wrote this. The name of the poem is, You Ask Me What I Call Success. You Ask Me What I Call Success. It's not wealth. It's not fame. Nor rank, nor power, nor honored name. It is not triumph in the arts, best-selling books, or leading parts. It is not plaudits of the crowd, the flame of flags, processions proud. The panegyrics of the press are but the mirage of success. He goes on for a bit, and then he wraps it up this way. A laughing fellow full of cheer, a faith that mocks at fear, who for his happiness relies on joys he lights in other eyes. He loves his home and envies none, who happier beneath the sun. I, though he walk in lowly ways, shining success has crowned his days. Close quote. Why are prosperity gospel churches often packed, sometimes with genuine believers in Jesus? Why are they packed? Because Christians, like everyone else, desperately want to be successful. So we, we send in our money and we pray these formulaic prayers in order to be rulers in Jesus' kingdom, which we redefine as health and wealth here on earth. All the while, Jesus shows us how to succeed. Serve. Rely for happiness on the joy we light in other people's eyes. How can we seek God? Relying on him all the way. Look up here. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. In essence, this sentence is describing how one must believe what you know. Believe what you know. Let me explain. How many of you in here have been Christians longer than 10 years? You've been a believer in Jesus Christ longer than 10 years. Okay, quite a few. 
quite a few. All right. Um, here's another one. How many of you have, in some form or another, um, taught the truths of God, either in your home or your small group or, or at work or a children's class, some situation you have taught, you've said something about God's Bible, about His truth? Okay, a lot of you. Now, here's why I ask those questions. I have a sobering reality for you. All of us who raised our hands are prime candidates for losing the zeal and the power that changed us. You see, Christians tend to forget that what we know is life-changing. And believing what we know is how we engage with God. Do you want to please God all the way to the end of the race? Do you want to seek Him and rely on Him? Then you must believe what you know. Ask yourself, am I really acting on the truth of what I know by now by rote? For example, do you know that God is Almighty God? Yes or no? Do you know that? Do you know that? All right. Do you know that he is good? He is ineffably good. God is incredibly always perfectly good. Yes or no? Do you know that? Okay. If you know that he's almighty God and he's good, then ask yourself this. Do I really believe as I go about my business today that God is genuinely going to do what is best for me? Or am I going to feel the need to take over myself? You see how this works? When you believe what you know, when you act on what you really know, it changes how you run the race. It, it, it keeps you from rejecting God's words as Asa did. It engages you with God. The one who would draw near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. Wouldn't you like real success? Adopt these practices. Life of King David, just a couple more, gives our next activity. I'm to practice holiness, not culturally acceptable sin. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13. After he arrived from Hebron, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. Now, David here is doing something that is acceptable and legal in his culture. He's taking lots of women. Uh, it was popular then for the same reason that bigamy is still popular in many parts of Africa today. It looks successful in those cultures. The, the, the thinking is that a man who can provide for so many families is a really big shot, right? But... Deuteronomy 17 made it clear that bigamy isn't God's plan. Why? Because it warps the king's heart. And thus, it's, it's supposed to be no surprise to us that by 2 Samuel 11, David is in blatant sin. What is your culturally acceptable sin? Let me tell you this. Whatever your culturally acceptable sin is, I can make a prediction. It is something that actually helps in your culture build up an image of success. It's something that makes you look successful. The late, great Jerry Bridges thought on this quite a bit. He produced a wonderful book, Respectable Sins. It is a list of sins that are overlooked or even, or even applauded in modern churches. And the reason we applaud these is they give the false appearance of power and achievement. Among others, he lists these things. And these are especially true at work. Uh, anxiety, pride, discontentment, lack of self-control, impatience, anger, and envy. And, and I would add in this day, a little after he wrote that book, we could add using foul language. Uh, that makes you appear powerful and important in a number of places. You want to finish well? You want to rely on God in true success? Be holy instead. Do not continue to accept your culturally acceptable sin. How do we finish well? Know that faithfulness is success. Re rejoice and request primary. Those are your primary efforts. Lead as servants, not as rulers. Believe what you know. Practice holiness, not culturally acceptable sin. And our final call may be the most important one of all. 
delight instead of compare. When the Israelites were traveling under Moses' leadership, a fascinating scene occurred. Two men rose up in the Hebrew camp while Moses and the elders were at an elders meeting. Uh, those two guys, Eldad and Medad, they began prophesying. They start speaking truthfully about the Lord. Now, this was something up till then that only Moses had done. By the way, technically, Eldad and Medad were supposed to be at the elders meeting too. Um, the people were jarred, okay? Listen, listen to their response. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? With that all the Lord's people were prophets, the Lord will put his spirit on them. Young guy runs in, brings word to the elders meeting that these guys are prophesying, and Joshua is indignant. He says, Stop it. This is your place. How dare they take your reputation? I care for, for your ministry, not anybody else's. Somebody's stealing your thunder. And Moses says, I am shocked every time I read this. Moses says he is going to delight in what God is doing through others, and he refuses to compare. Wow. Is that your response? Is that mine? Not usually. We are sadly prone to jealousy at others' great experiences instead of rejoicing for them. For example, just the other day, two weeks ago, I was praying for our long-term land search. Actually, I was driving in my car, and I was praying for our team and our long-term land search at this church, and I got a call from another pastor. I know he lives in another city, and, and his church had just completed buying their new property. And I, I listened to this guy just bubble with excitement on the phone. I had a choice to make, right? I could covet, in which case I would end up bitter, inevitably, or I could rejoice with the one who was rejoicing. Like Moses, I could delight instead of compare. In my opinion, there is not a more needed message in the Christian community today than this one. One lady wrote to me recently. This is brilliant. She said, Wayne, I look at social media and I'm appalled at the obvious failure of my life. Instead of being excited for my friends with their perfect children, white teeth, and new million-dollar homes, I end up comparing, which makes me depressed and angry. Close quote. Now, for today, for our purpose today, set aside the reality that many of those perfect posts are overblown attempts to try and cover other people's insecurity, all right? Just, just look at this woman's analysis. She cannot delight because she's comparing. She's right. We can't do both. As President Theodore Roosevelt said 100 years ago, comparison is the thief of joy. If we covet, we cannot delight. We cannot rely upon God in genuine success. And thus, when we compare, we finish poorly, just like Asa. 1924 Olympics gives a perfect illustration. 100-meter dash, all right? The Americans, who were the best in the world, Schultz and Paddock, lose the race because they compare. They turn to look. Harold Abrahams, the Brit, wins the race because he stays focused straight ahead the whole time and beats them at the tape. If we want to finish well, we must delight in our own race, not compare with anyone else's. With that instruction in our eyes and ears, let's pray. Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters that we will run this race with genuine success, knowing that faithfulness is success, that we will request and rejoice as our primary efforts, that we'll lead as servants, not rulers that we'll believe what we know, that we will practice holiness, not culturally acceptable sin. And Lord, maybe most importantly of all, may we delight instead of compare. I beg all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.